regarding sin, righteousness, and judgment, but also edifying the local body of Christ here. Be glorified in the end, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's get our Bibles out this morning. And turn to Matthew chapter 5, 38 to 42. Again, we are trying to learn about living a righteous life. It is increasingly difficult to live the kind of life that Jesus calls us to live in our culture today. And we will approach a subject and, and look at a subject this morning that is, quite frankly, difficult to talk about, much more difficult to live out, um, because it is just so ingrained because of our sinful nature and who we are. In Matthew 5, verse 38 to 42, we read this. It says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let them have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. I want to begin this morning talking about rights. This is a statement that we're all familiar with. I hope we're all familiar with. Uh, they change so much what they teach our kids anymore in school. Uh, it's a preamble to the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be what? Self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Our country was founded on rights. The right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In our Constitution, we have a document called what? The Bill of Rights. And it contains amendments that more clearly define our rights. Let's see how well you know your government. The First Amendment, what rights are protected there? Rights of freedom of speech, remember that? Religion and the press, yep. It also protects the right to what? Peaceful protest and to petition the government. The Second Amendment, what rights does that protect? Right to bear arms. The Fourth Amendment. I gotcha, don't I? <laughs> you constitutionally ill-prepared people. All right. The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against what? Unreasonable searches and seizures, okay? Basically, it's a right to security. The Sixth Amendment, the right to speedy and public trial. That's just some of the, the amendments in the, in the Bill of Rights that summarize our rights because we're a nation founded on rights. What has happened, though, is America in American society, and I say this, and this is an understatement, is obsessed with our rights. Did you know, this is where it's going to get funny now, that there is a photo bill of rights. Who has heard of the photo bill of rights? And you can feel free to laugh if you want to when I read some of these, so 
Um, this is what it says. We have come together in the midst of COVID-19 alongside the movement of, to fight police brutality and systemic racism to assert the rights of all lens-based workers and define actions that build a safer, healthier, more inclusive, and transparent industry. So in other words, if you use a camera, they've written your photo bill of rights. Okay? Now, yeah, I'm sure you had to know this one, right? There are, is a nudist bill of rights. Yep. As law-abiding citizens who are friends of nudism, including many members of the American Association for Nude Recreation. I didn't know this existed, by the way. I found out this is hilarious, but it highlights my point. We proudly affirm that we have and are entitled to exercise the nudist Bill of Rights. I have to think these people are from the West Coast. I'm sorry, but I have to think that's where they're from. Okay. There is a black birthing Bill of Rights. Now, what in the world is that? Uh, they believe that all black women and birthing persons are entitled to respectful, equitable, and high-quality pre- and postpartum care. So they wrote the Black Birthing Bill of Rights as a resource for every black person that engages in maternity care. Now, throughout human history, including American history, we have witnessed an explosion of rights movements. Some good and some not so good. There's the children's rights movements. Let's see how well you know your history. What was that founded for? This movement came into existence, yeah, as a result of no child labor laws. So for all of you, Gage and all your children, Brian, how old are your children? 16, 7, and 9. Okay. Guess what? Who's your 9-year-old? Who is your 9-year-old? Riley, yeah, you almost forgot your child's name. You're like me. Good for you. Riley, can you stand up? Just, I'm not going to just have you stand up. You're not gonna, you don't want to stand up? Okay. Here's the reason why I, I pointed out is that prior to this movement, children begin their working lives before their 10th birthday with little or no wages. So you would be eligible to work. So your dad's like, yes, I have more chores for you around the house. You did the yard work? Okay. Okay. Did you make dinner? No? Okay. So, 10 years old, before the 10th birthday, they were working. I'm saying it's a pretty good rights movement. There's the women's rights movement. Do you know who, who founded that? Women. There's a, there's a sarcastic, wise answer from my secretary. So it's on video, okay, if you can take the camera and put it right there. Okay, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, right? Remember that? Do you know that it was a very wide-ranging movement and it, it, it realized that they could only do one thing at a time, so they focused on what? A woman's right to vote, sure. And that's a good thing for women to vote. Um, there's a not-so-good movement. I don't know if you knew this existed. The men's rights movement. You guys know that? Since its inception, the men's rights movement has received substantial criticism, and some scholars describe the movement or parts of it as a backlash against feminism. You think so? 
Of course, we know better, right? Because we just went over this. Why is there a men's rights movement? Because the women are always going to, the woman is going to always try to usurp the man's control, but he has the trump card of male domination. He will rule over you. There's a men's rights movement. It's not known, and probably shouldn't be, but there's a men's rights movement. But of course, we all know of what? The civil rights movement. And when we think of the civil rights movement, what do we think of? Martin Luther King Jr., the 50s and the 60s, right? That's where you would be wrong in in one regard, because it really began in 1909 with the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Um, It's been the country's most enduring civil rights organization. Um, They publicized racial injustices and initiated lawsuits to secure equal treatment for black Americans in education, employment, housing, and public accommodations. Now, it was born out of this that we think of the normal 50s and 60s civil rights movements. But that was more or less for public accommodations. Now, remember that, the civil rights movement in that time frame, the 50s and 60s. Because following that was the right to life movement. Are you familiar with that? It's the first major U.S. organization in the modern anti-abortion movement. It's called the National Right to Life Committee. And it was formed out of what? Do you know? The United States Catholic Conference in 1967. Here's the the deal. Throughout the 1950s and 60s, a movement to liberalize abortion laws gained momentum due in part to the second wave of the women's rights movement or the feminist movement. So the women had the right to vote. They got that. What was the next thing they wanted? Reproductive rights. To, to murder innocent children in their womb. You see, it wasn't good enough. They wanted more. In response to that, the National Right to Life movement began. Did you guys know that? Anybody? Bueller? Bueller? And of course, there is the animal rights movement. And one of the things that I have some more movements we'll go through that you'll notice is that a lot of these movements started in the 70s. But the animal rights movement was founded in the United Kingdom in the early 1970s by a group of Oxford University postgraduate philosophy students. And they had to be philosophy students to come up with this movement because this is what they are all about. It seeks an end to to the rigid moral and legal distinction drawn between human and non-human animals. In other words, we're going to blur the line between animals and humans that were really not different at all. That makes me feel good. How about you? But that's the animal rights movement. Okay? Now, here are some lesser known rights movements. The autism rights movement. Have you heard of that? It, it emphasizes a neurodiversity paradigm viewing autism as a result of natural variations in the human brain rather than a disease to be cured. So basically, the people with autism are saying that we're really not sick, and they have a rights movement for that. There was a turn-off-your-cell-phone movement while the pastor was preaching. Um, it began right now, and they remind people to turn off your phones, so... No, this next one I, this is just shocking. There's the sex workers' rights movement. Guess when that began? 70s, exactly. You want to improve working conditions, increase benefits, 
and eliminate discrimination in this industry, whether it's legal or criminalized, by the way. But the, the, it just shocked me when I, I found this one, and there's a movement for this. Who has heard of, and if, if you have heard of this, you're, you're excused from this sermon. <clears throat> God bless you. The Voluntary Human Extinction Movement. That's not a joke. It's a legitimate. You've heard of it? Okay. This is an environmental movement. Um, and really, does anything good come out of the environmental movement? Not much. That calls for all people to abstain from reproduction to cause the gradual voluntary extinction of humankind. Mm -hmm. It's founded by Les Knight. Now, I want to give you a, a, a little help here, and a little quiz here. Where do you think Les Knight's from? And I'll give you a few hints. It's not the right coast or the east coast. It's not the center of the country, the Midwest. Where might it be? West coast. And, and which city do you think? Yeah. Not Seattle. Portland, exactly. Portland. A high school substitute teacher living in Portland, Oregon. I'll give him credit. At the age of 25, he got a vasectomy, so he's living out what he believes. But this group supports human extinction because it would prevent environmental degradation, and the decrease in the human population would prevent a significant amount of human-caused suffering. The voluntary human extinction movement. Now, logically, one would think that if you really believe in this, why don't you just commit suicide, right? Because if that's really what you are believe. But my point is this. Humanity, and in America particularly, we are obsessed with our rights. And in our fight for our rights, and we saw this last summer, we can't help but notice that inevitably these rights movements, it always leads to lawlessness in society. This happens because when people begin to live on the basis of their rights, what takes precedent in the heart? Selfishness. And when you have enough selfish people trampling on each other's rights, what is lawful becomes lost. And we saw that with the whole thing with George Floyd this past summer, right? It went from protests to what? Riots. And where was the law in all of that? Nowhere. It was lost. There is one more rights movement that perfectly illustrates the point I just made about the law being set aside when we press our rights. That's the LGBTQ rights movement, more commonly known as the gay rights movement. In 1924, Henry Gerber, a German immigrant, founded the Society for Human Rights, the first documented gay rights organization in the United States. Now, the gay rights movement has seen significant progress the last two decades. Laws prohibiting homosexual activity have been struck down. Lesbian, gay, and bisexual individuals are now allowed to serve openly in the military, and some same-sex couples are now legally can get married and adopt children in all 50 states. Now, it would be one thing if it stopped there. 
But the LGBTQ rights movement wants more, similar to the women's rights movement. What sets the LGBTQ movement apart from the others is the aggressive manner in which they force their rights upon you. Of course, what will this result in? Well, it results in the trampling on the rights of others. And late last week, the United States House of Representatives passed a very dangerous piece of legislation, which is called what? The Equality Act. And now it's headed to the Senate, which is now, of course, controlled by the Democrats. And uh, the Biden administration said they want to pass th this within the first 100 days. I'm just reminding you of this act. And what is so dangerous about the Equality Act? Again, under the broad reach of the Equality Act, schools, churches, and hospitals, faith-based hospitals, really, could be forced to accept the government beliefs and mandates about sexual orientation and gender identity. This act will legislate um, that we allow boys and girls sports, boys and girls locker rooms, and men and women's shelters and men and women's prisons. It will force teachers and students to publicly pretend that a biological male is a female and schools will be coerced to instruct first, second, and third graders that they can choose to be a boy or a girl or neither, basically making biological sex and science obsolete. It will use the force of law across all 50 states to threaten the right of Christian and other religious ministries to hire people of shared faith to pursue a shared mission. So if this church grows, I want to hire a youth pastor, let's say, and a higher one turns out that he, he's gay, or an applicant is gay, and he gets denied. What, under the Equality Act, could he do? Exactly. It will strip health professionals of their rights of conscience. It will force doctors and medical professionals who long to do no harm to people because that's what they've sworn to do. Not harm, but to help people engage in gender transition treatments, such as hormone blocking, cross-sex hormones, or surgery. This is all coming about as a result of what movement? Which, the LGBTQ movement, which of course is coming out of their desire to press their rights. And this is a story of human history. You don't get your way, so you press your rights in retaliation, which of course leads to the setting aside of the law. And what we're seeing today in these rights movements are just new expressions of a vengeful, retaliatory heart if they don't get their way. Of course, the current prime example of retaliation in these movements is what is called cancel culture. Familiar with that phrase? You hold a contrary view on an issue, whether that issue is reasonable or not, and i.e., if it's a conservative view, you run the risk of being canceled. By canceled, I mean not only on social media, you can lose your job, you can lose your career. Just ask Mike Lindell, 
My Pillow, J.K. Rowling, who of course wrote what? Harry Potter series, or Gina Carano, Carano, the Mand formerly of the Mandalorian, the actress, and she was a wrestler, I think, and actress. Now, C.S. Lewis found the idea of the need for rights or the struggle to get even because they're connected. So true of the human heart that he used it as the basis of his argument for moral law in the universe in his book on mere Christianity. In other words, we've been created in the image of God. You know what that means? And you know it. We have within us an innate sense of justice. But in the fall of man, that sense of justice became perverted into what? A vengeful, retaliatory, retaliatory spirit. So it's not that we just want what the wrong is to be made right. That's not good enough. We want to get even. And I've already established in this sermon this morning that we've grown up in a country built upon what? Human rights. I guess you could say that it's in our DNA to defend or press our rights. And our problem is not that we think that we have these rights, but that in defending these rights, it brings out what is hidden in the unfathomable, unsearchable recesses of the human heart, and that's a retaliatory, vengeful spirit. And I'm going to go by the fact that it's very quiet in here that you know what I'm talking about. And in our American society, we make heroes out of the kind of people who take nothing from nobody. Our society glorifies the strong, the tough, the courageous, while at the same time, our society looks down on the meek, non-retaliating, gentle, forgiving, gracious, and merciful person who demands nothing from anybody. Our society says these kinds of people are weaklings, they're cowards. Now in contrast to the fight for rights, we have the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 4 through 6 and verse 12. He says this. You don't need to go there, but it says this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord in Cephas, or Peter. Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to retain from working? In other words, Paul is saying, I have rights. He has a right. If he were married, to minister alongside a wife and to be paid for his ministry. But despite these rights, now listen closely, he never used them. Instead, verse 12, nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Now, do you see what he's saying there? My life is about, all about setting aside my rights for the sake of the gospel of Christ. Is that your life? I mean, is there anything more countercultural than this attitude and lifestyle to lay aside your rights? 
the sake of something else. Because Jesus is asking us to do the same in Matthew 5, 38 to 42. So let's take a look at what he says about rights. If you haven't noticed already, as we've gone through this chapter 5 of Matthew, there is a pattern in the way our Lord speaks. And it goes like this. There's the principle of the law of Moses, the perversion of the Jewish teaching or tradition, and the perspective of Jesus. So let's talk about the principle of the law of Moses. Now, I do want to say something before I begin about this particular section of Scripture. This may be the most misunderstood and misapplied set of verses in the Bible. People have used Matthew 5, 38 to 42, to teach lawlessness, to teach pacifism, to teach conscientious objection to war, to teach anti-capital punishments, and a disbelief in justice and civil law. And of course, a classic example of this comes from the great Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy, who used Matthew 5, 38 to 42, to argue that there should be no police or armies, basically no authorities in society. Let me give you another example that I've run into as a pastor of, a, of the misunderstanding and misapplication of this passage would be this. Someone commits a crime against you. Do we just turn the other cheek and forgive them and let them get away with it? Or do we uphold the law and punish them? Right? We all have those situations. I want to put your minds at ease that tell you that this passage is not telling you to set aside the law. When the law is upheld, I want everyone to listen to me, when the law is upheld, God is glorified. Now scripture tells us the reason why the law was given. In 1 Timothy 1 verses 9 through 11, again, just listen. Paul says this, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, keeping your cell phones on during your sermon, all of that. The law was written for those people. This is according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which with which I have been entrusted. So in other words, God gave the law to protect who? The wicked or the righteous? The righteous against the wicked, evil men. And at no point in time are we to remove the law. Because why was the law given? I'm not talking about just spiritual law, but all law. To preserve society. To curb evil, to preserve society. Now, let's look at Matthew 5, 38. You should be there in your Bibles. It says this. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Three times in the Old Testament you find that phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I'm going to read these to you, okay, and then we'll share some, just some observations, a few observations about these passages. Here it is. It's in Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 and 25. It says this. 
If men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child, so she gives birth prematurely, yet there is no injury, he shall surely be fined as the woman's husband may demand of him. He shall pay as the judges decide. But if there is any further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Leviticus 24, 17 to 20. If a man takes the life of any human being, he shall surely be put to death. The one who takes the life of an animal shall make it good life for life. If a man injures his neighbor just as he has done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, just as he has injured a man, so it shall be inflicted on him. For those of you that believe in capital punishment, you're saying, I like where this pastor is going with this sermon. Finally, Deuteronomy 19, 16 to 21. If a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both the men who have the dispute shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who will be in office in those days. The judges shall investigate thoroughly. If the witness is a false witness and he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he has intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge evil from among you. The rest will hear and be afraid and will never again do such an evil thing among you. Thus you shall show no pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now here are just some thoughts summarizing those points. It's important you just listen to me in this real quick. All three of those examples I, I read to you occur in a civil situation. Okay? And who did God put in the authority to determine the outcome of the situation? A judge or the individual that was harmed? It was a judge. He put judges and magistrates and authorities to take care of civil matters. We also see in this passage, or rather we don't see, that there is no room for personal vengeance. Did you catch that? And when justice is enacted speedily and equitably, it has a great effect on society. See, and that's why, you know, when some states simply would not allow the protests to go on, they were fine. But the damage done in Portland and in Seattle when they would allow the lawlessness, it encouraged more behavior, which led to more crimes. Punishment is to fit the crime we see here. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The law was a restraint, and this is important, on the innate vengeance in an evil heart, which always seeks to go beyond the level of the offense. In other words, we're almost incapable of equitable punishment when we're offended. We take it too far. And you've gotten upset with your children, sometimes you discipline them too much. Now, in order for, their, for the preserving of a society, there must be law and order. And finally, and you notice this in the Deuteronomy uh, verse, that the courtroom is not a place for pity. It's not. Now, here are some other verses in the Old Testament that speak to retaliation. 
And I want you to notice that these verses go beyond just the physical act, but they also address the attitudes of the heart. Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Proverbs 24.29. Do not say, thus I shall do to him as he has done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. In Proverbs 25, 21. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. So we see that the Old Testament forbid holding a grudge. And that's a heart issue, folks. It also required a forgiving, loving heart towards your enemy. And just so you know that the word enemy in Proverbs 25, 21. Again, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him water. The word enemy there, it means a real enemy. It's not someone, I wrote this down, you know, the, the annoying neighbor that's kind of your enemy, they let their dog pee in your yard, disclaw your yard. A little annoying, you know, in your heart little enemy. No, 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 we're not talking about that kind of person. We're talking about the type of enemy who has maybe killed your family. And Proverbs says, you, if he's hungry, what do you do for that enemy? He's thirsty, give him water. Now some of you may be thinking, I didn't know the Old Testament taught this. It reads an awful lot like the New Testament. How do I balance upholding the law of God, making sure the law is, is, is honored and is, is applied, while at the same time maintaining a forgiving, loving heart? Because that's really the, the challenge for us. So I, I discovered this example. It would be like this. Someone breaks into your house to harm your family. What do you do? Well, according to the Old Testament, and this is anything New Testament, by the way, just the Old Testament, this is what you should do. You protect your family by tackling that person to the ground and hold them there. And while waiting for the authorities to arrive, if he was hungry, what would you do? Feed him. And if he was thirsty, what would you do? Give him water. He obviously needs Christ so you could share the gospel with him. And most of all, this is the key thing, forgive him. Love him. And then let the law do exactly what God gave the law to do. Because that person should not be free in society, should they? No. Now, I know that's common sense, which is a rarity today, but that's just what the Old Testament taught. Now, here's the sad thing about it. It got perverted. Let's talk about the perversion of Jewish teaching. The scribes and the Pharisees had twisted the truths that were plenty taught in the Old Testament, when I went over with you guys in a brief manner, into a, a personal vengeance principle. Their teachings are perhaps best summed up in the person of Lamech. Remember Lamech? L-A-M-E-C-H. Go all the way back. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 are the creation narrative. What happens to Genesis chapter 3? The fall of man. Genesis chapter 4 is where we find Lamech. So way in the beginning, listen to this about him. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice. 
you wives of Lamech, give heed to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me, and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Now, is this how you'd like to be remembered? Because I want you to look at how deeply seated in his evil heart was a vengeful spirit. Lamech was wounded by a man, so what did he do? He killed him. That is not equal punishment for the crime, or quid pro quo, or tit for tat. Lamech was struck by a boy, so what did he do? He killed him. See, folks, this is why we need the law. It restrains the evil of the human heart. But the scribes and Pharisees, they cherished a spirit of retaliation. Therefore, they viewed an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, as a mandate for personal vengeance instead of a limit on personal vengeance. They took matters that should have been decided by a judge in a courtroom, out of the courtroom, and personally exacted revenge. And boy, that feels good, doesn't it? At least for a while. Then they took their twisted understanding of an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth, and they used it to justify hearts full of love, no, hearts full of hate. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, it's the foundation principle of all of human justice. It's the oldest law we have on record. It's called Lex Tionis. Um, in the court of law, I want and you want justice to curb evil so as to preserve society. But in personal relationships, we want love and forgiveness. We don't want an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. So in other words, here's an example I came up with. If your wife borrows your, your truck, the husband's truck, and she dents the fender, the husband doesn't take the wife's car and then go and dent the fender because that would be right, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Some of you are shaking, saying, well, yeah, we actually did that in our marriage, and it's amazing we're still married. But no, that's not how relationships work, okay? But you see, the Pharisees and the scribes, they operated in their personal relationships with vendettas and vindications and revenges and vengeance. And Jesus is saying to them, you're not righteous if you treat people that way. And that's the perversion of Jewish teaching. And we'll spend the rest of our time as we close this morning on the perspective of Jesus. Look at verses 39 to 42. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Again, I say this to remind you, Jesus is not saying that the subjects of his kingdom are doormats who lie down and are trampled upon. Because the key question, though, for this passage is this. What does Jesus mean when he says, do not resist an evil person? I mean, what does that mean? Well, the word resist here means to set against so don't set yourself against one who wrongs you. 
which really just means don't seek revenge. Don't seek to retaliate. The one who wrongs you in personal matters is not to be opposed. Now, in civil matters, are they to be opposed? Yes. But in personal matters, no. Don't fight somebody who violates your rights. Now, this is not a popular message today in our rights crazed society. But this is Jesus' counterculture message. And by the way, this is a general principle you find all throughout the Bible. Look at the, the New Testament, Romans 12, 17 through 21. It says this, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay says the Lord, but if your enemy is hungry, now where does he get this from? Feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him a drink. That's Proverbs 25, 21. I didn't share the last half of that verse. Paul does for us right here. Give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So when wronged, in personal matters, don't retaliate. Live like a subject of his kingdom by being a peacemaker. Isn't that what we're to be? That's in the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the peacemakers. And because of the vengeful spirit in your evil heart, give the Lord your wrath. Let him deal with your enemy, is what that means. And then you show your enemy that you are a son of your heavenly father by feeding him if he's hungry, giving him a drink if he's thirsty. Now, in these verses, verses 39 through 42, Jesus picks out four basic human rights. And by the way, the Constitution of the United States guarantees these rights. Let's look at them real briefly. The first one is dignity, that's in verse 39. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but if he slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Obviously, as human beings, we're made in the image of God. It means we have a right to dignity. But we all know this, that life isn't fair. You are not always going to be treated with dignity. God knows this. And the Jews at that time said this, that the most demeaning, contemptuous act was to slap someone in the face. They also said that the most demeaning, doubly contemptuous, arrogant man would slap you with the back of his hand. And even a Roman slave would rather be thrashed with a whip than slapped with the back of his master's hand. It was that demeaning. But I want you to pay attention to the details of this passage in Jesus' words. It says, whoever slaps you on your right cheek. Now, why did he say that? He slaps you on your right cheek. Because a right hand, right? Your right hand will always smack somebody on the right cheek when it uses the back of its hands. So the first slap, if you picture someone up here, 
you slap them, what's hitting them? From my right hand, the palm. On the way back, what's hitting them? So the left cheek gets the palm, the right cheek gets what? The back of the right hand. This is what was most demeaning. With me so far? So what Jesus is saying is when someone treats you in a way that is less than you deserve, they've taken away your right to dignity, don't retaliate. Let them do it again. It's not, you see, it's not two slaps on the cheek. The left and the right, and then you retaliate. No, 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 no. You take as much as they can give before you even think of retaliating. Now, why would anyone act like that, right? And we say what? Have some pride, man. But listen, if you're worried about your pride and your dignity, be patient. You will have it when the king returns for a second time. But don't fight for it here. Let your king fight for it. Because that's what kings do, right? They protect their, their subjects. Turn your wrath over to him. But if you do fight for it now, you run the risk of ruining your witness by acting in a way different than your king. Of course, Jesus did what? He turned the other cheek. He was slapped multiple times. He was beaten. He was spit upon. He was flogged. So your right to dignity. Then there's, excuse me, there's your security. The next verse. If anyone wants to sue you and take your right shirt or take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Charles Spurgeon, the great pastor of the 1800s, said this. Sometimes we have to be the anvil while bad men are the hammers. Sometimes people are just going to take advantage of us. And this right corresponds to what Jesus is saying here, to the, our Fourth Amendment rights. And the idea behind this verse is that there's some justification for this person's lawsuit, and he's suing you for your shirt in court. And since there's a justification for the lawsuit, most likely they're going to win. He's going to get a favorable decision from the judge and get your shirt. And Jesus says this, and when he, gives, when he gets your shirt... Show how sorry you are for the trouble you caused him and give him your coat also. Now, to a Jew, at this time, that was absolutely devastating because they would immediately think to their mind of Exodus chapter 22, which says this, that if you ever take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, you are returned to him before the sun sets. Now, why would God say that? Well, for that is in, it's his only covering i.e. it's his blanket, it's his cloak for his body, what else shall he sleep in? And it shall come about that when he cries out to me, if you don't give him back his coat, I will hear him, for I am gracious. Again, the coat was like a blanket, had to be returned before nightfall so the person could keep warm during the cold nights. Let me put it differently to you. You have a right to security, Correct? But put that right aside. Don't hold a grudge in your heart. Show your enemy how sorry you are by offering him all that you have to stay warm and secure. Now, 
this is a hard message to preach, it's hard to hear, but I believe that this has a, will have an effect of shocking the person as you demonstrate a loving heart toward an enemy. So give more than he asks for as a witness for your king. We see this verse also speaks to an inner heart attitude. And another issue we have to deal with in our society, and that is this. Folks, don't be in a hurry to sue. We are a litigious society. The court's overwhelmed with lawsuits. Our heart attitude, the heart attitude of the subject of his kingdom, is not one that goes around seeking to get everything we can get out of everybody. That's a wrong attitude. The third right we have is liberty. Remember that? Dignity, security, and now liberty. Whoever forced you to go one mile, go with him too. We have a right to freedom. That's our Fifth Amendment right. But in this world, guess what? There are people who are not going to respect your freedom. They're going to step on your freedom or try to take away your freedom. Now, during Jesus' time in Rome, a courier could be conscripted by an official for some public duty. Of course, the best example would be Simon of Cyrene. Remember him? Jesus taking his cross to Golgotha, and what does he do? He can't carry it. So the Roman soldier grabs whoever he can and forces Simon to carry the cross of Jesus Christ. Basically, the government could, could force you to do that. It meant that living in that time, you had to face the fact that you could be conscripted at any time. But there was also a rule at that time when a Roman soldier asked a citizen to carry his pack he could never ask any one citizen to carry it more than one mile. But Jesus says, when somebody infringes upon your liberty to carry his pack one mile, uh-uh, go two. But just keep in mind, and this is probably an everyday situation back then, the Jews hated Roman soldiers because they represented the Roman Empire that was oppressing them. And the chances are that this soldier is heading the opposite direction you're heading. So you're walking down the road. Okay, you're going this way. Soldier's going this way. He stops you. You already don't like him to begin with. And he says, carry my pack. And you had to carry it the opposite direction for a mile. And by the way, you're also carrying literally the weapons of warfare that are oppressing your people. And in this context, Jesus says, no, don't go one mile. Go two. I mean, it'd be like, to give you an example of this, let's say that you had a very important uh, business meeting that would determine really the, the financial future of your company up in Seattle. And you're on your way driving up there, and the police pull you over and say, I need you to take this message down to Olympia. Stay there, okay? Or just drop it off. But in doing so, you're going to miss this meeting. You have no choice. You have to take it down to Olympia. That would be going one mile. Jesus says, no, 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 go two miles. Stay there, get the results, then bring them back to that police officer. That's two miles. Now, who of us would want to do that? When you're infringing upon our freedom, our, my liberty. But this is what Jesus is saying. 
Now, is this hard to do? Absolutely. But here's the thing. This is how your Heavenly Father treats you. What would it be like if God only went one mile with you? You'd be in trouble. We would all be in trouble if that was the attitude of God. And finally, property. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. The last thing we hang on to is what we own, right? What does Jesus say? If someone has a need, and I believe he's referring to a legitimate need, if they ask, give to them. If someone wants to borrow from you, let him have it. This is the kind of heart we are to have, that self-sacrificing, generous heart. That is the heart of a subject of his kingdom. Well, how can one be so generous? Well, you've got to remember, this is why you need to put the word of God in you. The subjects of his kingdom understand that all that we have, all that you have, has been given to you. And in the end, a subject of his kingdom inherits what? Now, please tell me you guys can get this question. It's been all this time going over it. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit. You get it all. Not what you had. You get it all in the end. Do you forget that? That's why you can be generous. And that means that my possessions don't own me. Let me sum up what Jesus is saying in these, these four or five verses here. That if all of our rights are taken away from us, the right of dignity, the right of security, the right of liberty, and the right of property, don't retaliate. We just commit it to the, all to the Lord and act in love. Don't chase the things of this world that destroy the testimony that God wants you to bear. Now, this is a hard message to receive. But how do I live this out? Well, the only person that I can think of who is not defensive, protective of their rights, never bears a grudge and never seeks to retaliate, and you're thinking, that person doesn't exist, right? is a person who has died to self and put Christ on the throne of their life as their rightful king. That's what it means to be in the kingdom, by the way. The kingdom of God, it will come in its fullness, a literal kingdom. He will come and reign physically. But until then, the kingdom has come, the scriptures say, but it's the rule in the hearts of men, which means that you no longer live your life you're under control. He lives his life through you. You have died to self. Through the power the king gives in the gift of the Holy Spirit, are we able to live this kind of life? Think about this. If I die to self, what is there left to defend? If I die to self, what is there left to protect? 
If I die to self, what grudge is there to bear? If I die to self, what retaliation is there? Here's the thing. But if I'm going to fight for my rights, then I prove the point that self is ruling on the throne of my heart. George Mueller said this, there was a day when I died, utterly died to George Mueller and his opinions, his preferences, his taste, and his will. I died to the world, its approval, and its censure. I died to the approval or blame of even my brethren and friends. And since I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. See, that's a kingdom heart. It's the heart of Joseph who generously gave, forgave his brothers who had sold him in slavery. It's the heart of David who after being hunted for years by the evil king Saul to slaughter him, spares his life on two occasions. It's the heart of Stephen who lies crushed beneath the bloody stones, asks that the sin of stoning him not be laid to the charge of those who did it. And of course, it's the heart of Jesus who says, Father, forgive them while hanging on a cross, dying for our sins. That is counterculture living. And that's how a subject of our king lives their life. And so it pains me when you study this, and you, we, it's all the time it happens, churches in turmoil, turmoil and conflict and dividing. You know what the root of it all is? They're protecting their rights. And so I'm asking you to do this this week. If you're offended this week, and there's a good chance you will be, it's a fallen society we live in, don't retaliate. Instead, respond in love. So if your spouse does something that ticks you off, don't retaliate. Respond differently. Respond in love. Okay? If your, your husband doesn't like your cooking... Bring it to me, I'll eat it. <laughs> Especially if they doesn't like your cinnamon rolls with someone that sits right over there. Give them to me. Even Romanian food? Even Romanian, yes, especially that, yes. So, I had to lighten up a little bit. All right, are we good? Okay, so who wants to repeat to me verbatim what I just said, like the gist of what I just said? Anybody? No, there's enough here for you to digest. So let's pray in light of time. We'll just I'll pray and end the service. Okay? Let's, uh, why don't you stand and we'll pray and we'll just go. Because we went over a little late. It's almost noon. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your word to us this morning. It's a hard word, but it's a good word. We lift you up. We want you to be glorified. And we want to be your kind of people. We acknowledge that we have an evil, vengeful, retaliatory heart. A spirit within us that wants to get even. Oh, Lord, we all struggle with this. May we die to self and to our rights and put the rights of Jesus Christ first in how we live our lives. And all God's people said, amen. Enjoy your once sunny, now gray, probably rainy day that's ahead of you.